Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I am your host, Alexandro. I don't recall having that recollection, Sunak told the COVID inquiry last week. If I ever knew that, then I've forgotten it, Johnson said the week before, adding, insofar as I was paying any attention. Well, we have been paying attention and our recall is pretty flawless. So we thought we would put together something marking the end of module two, which is all about decision making during the pandemic. Joining me again to help me choose the highlights or lowlights is Christina Pargel, Professor of Operational Research at UCL and a member of Independent Sage. Thank you for coming back, Christina. Thank you for having me. Right. There's a lot to cover. So let's get into it. We've both picked some moments from the last four weeks that we think are essential takeaways and maybe have not been sufficiently covered. Shall we start with Sunak's evidence? Why not? His eat out to help out scheme has been quite thoroughly pulled apart during module two. And in his evidence on Monday the 11th, his reasoning for the scheme was less than clear. Let's have a listen. Hospitality had been deemed to be safe to reopen with a considerable, as I said, hundreds of pages of guidance, changes in practice, and had been recommended by think tanks and had been done by countries elsewhere. This was a very reasonable, sensible policy intervention to help safeguard those jobs in that safe reopening. That was my view. I didn't believe that it was a risk. I believed it was the right thing to do. But then he said this. As a general rule, the Treasury was always wary, as it should be, of temporary things that cost money becoming permanent, uh, because that comes with significant fiscal implications. So the idea was very clearly to have something that was temporary to elicit the behavioural response, and that was was always uh, meant to be the case. So it it was about behavioural response in part. It wasn't just about the fiscal support for the sector. You've you've just said. I mean, that's exactly right. I wanted to talk about this, Christina, because I think to me it's the standout moment where the notion we were following the science falls apart. Because not only as we found throughout Module 2, there is no one science to follow. That's become very clear, right? The science is an evolving process of question and answer and and increasing certainties and uncertainties. But on this occasion, they didn't even ask the science. You know, they didn't even go to the science for advice. And Sunak's excuse, which is superficially attractive, is that that's fine because this is a purely fiscal measure. It has nothing to do with health. But it seems to me that the fiscal support around a measure makes a huge difference to its take-up. So whatever model was in the background, behavioral model, you know, as to how many people would take advantage of the easing of lockdown, 
I mean, if you go and then offer money to people to take advantage of the easing of the law, that model changes. And it's just plain dishonest to claim that this has nothing to do with the health people. What, what did you think? I mean, I thought it was quite interesting where he kind of also said, you know, I didn't think there was any risk. And that's exactly what you go to the science for. Mm. You know, he wasn't interested in, in finding out. And as you say, he did something to try and increase use. I mean, that was the whole point of it. And if he hadn't had a behaviour change, the policy would have failed as a fiscal measure. Yeah. And he also said things like, oh, other countries were doing it. Other countries were doing it and were seeing cases go up, actually, which had also been highlighted by think tanks like the Tony Blair Institute. So mm. it was just a really odd thing to say. And, and it's just like, I don't think eat out to help out cause a second wave. I mean, it, it just didn't. But the attitude it displays of I know better and I don't even need to ask for advice, yeah. let alone follow it, I think is quite, is quite damaging to Sunak. Yes, I've seen a lot of that in friendly press and online. I don't think it's an effective defence to say I didn't kill anyone, so driving drunk was okay. Yeah. Um, plainly, that's not why the rules are in place. Yeah, I mean, and, and as it happened, like LSE did, um, and London School of Economics did a paper looking at the economic impact and showed that, yeah, it did have some benefit, but it was quite small mm. and it was entirely temporary and vanished in September when the scheme stopped. I remember that. They found that it shifted quite a lot of people going out for meals from the weekend to the weekdays, basically. But overall, it made a very small bump up to the economy in those terms. And maybe that's why it actually didn't have an even worse <laughs> yeah, effect epidemiologically, because it wasn't actually very effective as a measure. So next, I wanted to highlight something that Michael Gove said. I believe that we were too slow to lock down initially in March. I believe that we should have taken stricter measures before we eventually decided to do so late in October. I believe that uh, while it was admirable that we succeeded in building testing capacity so quickly, that uh, the strategic approach to who should be tested and why and what our tests were for um, was not as rigorously thought through as it might have been. So he goes on to say that the government should also reflect on the way it procured PPE and that he had concerns that the government didn't pay any attention to the impact some measures had on vulnerable groups, especially children. The reason I've chosen this is because Michael Gove is, and I think I have seen all the politicians give evidence, and he's the only one that pinpointed what he thought they got wrong. And the pattern in the inquiry is that a lot of people plainly thought it was the smart thing to do to be humble and apologize for what happened and give generic excuses along the lines of, you know, it was a, an unprecedented thing and we were very pressurized and, of course, we got some things wrong. But asked to pinpoint what they got wrong, Boris Johnson is a good example of that, they couldn't name anything. And when each individual policy decision was put to them, they defended it to the hilt. So Gove stands out for me because he's the only one that lists actually the areas where they got it wrong and where I think 
this is key, the inquiry plainly already knows that they got it wrong, which is what was so surprising from the rest of the politicians. They came out to a pitch that was already very clearly going in a particular direction and just tried to play defensively to the extent that I think towards the end of the session of people like Hancock, people like Johnson, people like Sunak, Lady Hallett was kind of hurrying her counsel along because it was clear they weren't going to get anything useful out of them. And, you know, the documentary evidence they have, I think, is so strong that they don't need, you know, Boris Johnson to admit that number 10 was a binfire at the time. You know, he's ad he admits it in emails and WhatsApp messages <laughs> plenty at the time. What did you think of those things that Gove listed? They're quite a good summary, I think. Of yeah, I mean, I think he's totally right. That would have been a better response. I think he was a bit wrong to say that we were particularly good at rapid testing. You know, by mid-March 2020, we were only doing 5,000 a day. Mm. And South Korea, with a smaller population, was doing 15,000 a day. You know, we could have been better on that. But I think, in general, he's right. What also struck me about his testimony, he's the only one that gave like what sounded like a sincere apology. Mm. I thought that was interesting. And I don't know whether it was easier for him because he was always on the side of more suppression of the virus compared to, say, Johnson or Sunak and just isn't as much of a liar as Hancock, or at least not such, so much of an obvious one <laughs> if he is. But, but I thought, you know, he, he pinpointed the right things. To yeah. be honest. I think he's just a smarter politician, to be honest. Yeah, maybe. Actually, the cabinet office of which he was in charge was the main thing that a lot of the civil servants and spads pointed a finger at. So he got away really very lightly mm. just by fronting up, just by saying, yeah. I mean, it's a disarming tactic, isn't it? I, uh, if you start that way, it's hard for people to then... Completely. And, and I am amazed... It sort of confirmed to me the lack of quality in politicians around him. I mean, it seems to me that Gove could have made it into a Thatcher cabinet and none of the other people we saw would even be making the tea, which I think says a lot about that party. So this next clip is, is heavily related to what we just talked about. This is Hugo Keith, King's counsel for the inquiry to Boris Johnson on excess deaths during the pandemic. All other Western European countries had a lower level of excess death. Oh, I've seen. Italy was tragically um, in a worse position than the United Kingdom. Well, I, I, don't wish, I don't wish to, to contradict you, Mr. Keith, but the, the evidence, the, the uh, ONS data I saw put us, I think, about 16th or, or 19th in a table of 33. In Western Europe, we were one of the worst off, if not the second worst off. I mean, it's easy to trade statistics. It's worth saying that the inquiry has commissioned its own and that they're standardised and, in my view, quite definitive. Why do you think he's still arguing that the UK didn't do so badly out of it? And what is the, the reality there? He's arguing it because that's the line that people are taking now. Everyone did badly and we weren't any worse than anyone else. And to my mind, well, firstly, it's wrong. And secondly, it's just bullshit competitiveness. Like it doesn't, mm. it's not helpful and it's inappropriate. So the truth is that by the end of 2020, we had one of the worst excess mortality rates in Europe mm. across the board. 
behind only, according to ONS, behind Bulgaria and Spain. And we were almost twice as high as France. So so we definitely did really badly. And then we started doing better. Yeah. And we started doing better because we had a really good vaccine rollout. And we were lucky that we have very low vaccine hesitancy in this mm. country mm. compared to some others. So, for instance, like in Eastern Europe, like only 30% of people in Bulgaria are double vaccinated. Yeah. Right. So Eastern Europe saw really high deaths in 2021 that we avoided. And the point is that if you look at it overall, you're missing that story and you're missing any learning about what happened. So we did badly in the first year and then we did better because of our vaccine rollout. That's useful information. And if all you care about is where do I stand in the league table, you're not learning anything. And and that's what's really disappointing to me. It's like we seem determined not to learn from other countries' tactics, from our own tactics. It's all about how did we do? What place did we come? And, and I just find that just incredibly disappointing. I mean, maybe it's not surprising from Johnson, but I'm a bit surprised that the inquiry didn't try and pick that apart and say, well, which bits are responsible for where we came and, and, and what was good and what was bad? Mm. Yes, no, I agree. Um, there was insufficient probing of that. But again, I think people maybe slightly overestimate the value placed on the oral evidence. Actually, the yeah. documentary evidence when it comes to these things okay. is much, much stronger. And in many ways, the, the sort of oral sessions are to give them rope to hang themselves, you know, so that the paragraph is then written that so-and-so denies this, but the evidence clearly shows it. The other aspect that I'm surprised is so rarely mentioned and, and has become a bit of a kind of bugbear of mine is, you know, the fact that Comparing ourselves to, say, Italy or Spain, I mean, it ignores the fact that we had more of a heads up. And, and that, to me, is absolutely vital. Like, we had, we had a head start in comparison to Italy that was hit first. And not only that, we had a fairly well-organized and national health system, not the case, for instance, in places like Germany, who struggled to coordinate their various federal bits to have a national response. So I think considering the advantages with which we started, we should have done a lot better than how we did, not just mid-table. Well, and I don't know if you remember, but uh, when Jenny Harries was testifying... It was coming out of, of emails she'd written, I think, in mid-March, dismissing the evidence from Italy and goes, mm. oh, well, they're obviously much worse than us and we're really well prepared. And it was just it was just kind of, no, actually, you've been given a warning, let's do something about it, instead of this really damaging complacency and arrogance. And, and don't forget, we also could see what Eastern Asian countries were doing who had experience of SARS. If you're going to follow mm. anyone, mm. you follow the people that just yep. had a pandemic, yep. you know? And there was this kind of weird... I don't know whether it was subconscious or indirect, but it's kind of weird racism that somehow what they do isn't appropriate for our populations. Yes, I think I think it was partly a function of Brexit having just happened and the government having just sort of rode in on that wave and very much that attitude. There was almost a presumption that if Europe zigged, we had to zag. That was the instinct. We didn't always do it, but that was the knee-jerk reaction to go the other way from how everyone else was going because we are, for instance, much more liberal than apparently a population, which, I mean... Can't possibly wear a mask. But it's just ludicrous. <laughs> to, to someone like me who comes from elsewhere, 
the notion that the British are a revolting nation that doesn't follow rules as compared to, for instance, the French or the <laughs> Greeks or the Italians. I mean, I can't tell you just how patently ridiculous that notion is. The biggest advantage in this country in such a situation is that you have an incredibly compliant population that's used to following rules. I mean, just look at our queuing. <laughs> just <laughs> everything. Look at everything. Just finally, like on the documentary evidence, what I hope the inquiry will make really clear is that the countries that waited for their big waves until after they were vaccinated, there aren't that many of them, but the ones that did it have about a third of the deaths. Mm. of countries that didn't. Mm. I mean, there's a massive difference. It just is simply not true that everyone did the same. Yeah. And, you know, as for dense population, I think that has been quite thoroughly debunked by council at the inquiry yeah. by pointing to countries like, again, South Korea, Japan, Singapore, countries with much, much um, denser and equally old population, because that's the other excuse that was put forward, that we have an older population. And it's like, well... That's why they standardise the mortality rates. Right, the next clip, this is interesting. We sort of caught that at the last minute because counsel for the various participating entities made representation. And so the government chief scientific advisor and the chief medical officer had their own counsel in the inquiry, I guess, to make sure that politicians didn't come and hang everything on, on their advice. But he made this very interesting statement in his submissions. We would submit that the evidence shows that the structure for the provision of scientific advice during an emergency such as a pandemic is fundamentally sound. In particular, we would invite the inquiry to treat with caution suggestions of changes to the approach to SAGE minutes, which were produced quickly and circulated widely, or to the composition of SAGE, or to the way in which its advice is communicated to central government. So that was Neil Sheldon, Casey. Christina, I found this quite odd. Maybe you didn't. What did, what did you think as a member of independence, as a member of a body that had to be put together basically to fill the gaps? Um, what do you make of this idea that no reform is necessary? I thought it was kind of disappointingly unself-reflected, you know, and perhaps it's understandable defensiveness if you think about government ministers trying to sh throw them under the bus. But... I don't think it was helpful. And actually, when thinking about this, I, I found this paper that written, written in 2022, and it was drawing on a lot of the evidence given to both House of Commons and House of Lords committees looking at the first year and a half mm. of the pandemic. And what they kind of said is that actually back then, Patrick Vallance was a lot more reflective. And he actually said, you know, for instance, initial secrecy was unhelpful. He said, we made a mistake early on by not doing that. He emphasised that the science system had to be made more robust. And, you know, he said things like that back then. Mm. The, the House of Commons committee said that early 2020 was one of the most important public health failures the UK has ever experienced. And contributing to that, they said, were deficiencies in the machineries of government, resistance to transparency and scientific advice, low levels of input from international experts and a lack of meaningful challenge to official advice. And, and so they actually highlighted some of the issues with it. 
And what the authors then said is that because then we had a successful vaccine rollout, that then people started changing the narrative and saying, oh, actually, we did fine and becoming quite resistant to the idea that things went wrong in the first year. And I think we're seeing that now. And they actually said here that scientific advice entered a zone of self-justification where it was more mistakes were made, but not by me. And that seems to be what what Valance, uh, not Valance, what the council was saying mm-hmm. there on their behalf. And I think that is a little bit disappointing to me. And again, this dichotomy of sort of the f- the first phase, as it were, where we did pretty badly. And then the second phase, which because of quick vaccine rollout and high level of vaccine pickup, we did much better. And they sort of put those two together and say, we have very little to learn from that first phase, which is just not which true. Is, which right? is nonsense. Yeah. And, you know, what the vaccine did, yes, we have a lot to learn out from, from the good things that happened there, but it, it gave us a buffer against actually continued bad policy mm. decisions. Mm. And that seems to be ignored. And so, you know, that paper ends up some really interesting lessons about having need to have more independence, but also giving scientists more freedom to criticise. And actually, they, you know, you've seen it in the inquiry and you've seen it you know, I think over the last few years, that scientists who are on stage are actually very reluctant to ever criticise. And there seems to be almost that you feel co-opted into a system where you have to support things even if privately you don't agree. And I think you can see that in the mismatch mm-hmm. of Valence's diaries and actually what he was saying at the time at the press conferences. I think also council was saying something about how he never expected his diaries to be made public and they were all very kind of of the spur of the moment and mm. not necessarily his considered opinion. I'm like, he was chief scientific advisor. What did he think was going to happen to those minutes? He possibly knew his Ca- diaries were going to become evidence. Council <laughs> for him actually said this fantastic thing, which was um, he, he wanted to remind the inquiry that although his diaries and, and evening notes were provided, of course, willingly, they were not provided enthusiastically. <laughs> it's just... Um, yeah. but, but don't you think there was also a, a very interesting thing, or maybe it's in my head, there did seem to be a, a difference between the people who are still in the system, as it were, and people like Jonathan Van Tam and Patrick Valence, who are no longer part of the system, who are now not, you know, in that position that they were or government advisors or, you know, they've left it. And they were the most critical of the process, where someone like Chris Whitty, who is still in that position, has been the most, on the one hand, on the other hand. I mean, I, I would agree with that, with the exception of Angela McLean, who's now chief scientific advisor, who actually gave really robust... That's true. Um, commentary. That's and I true, think she true. might have been the one that called their scientists the fuckwit in September as well. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I don't think she's the norm there. No, there was a directness to her that was not there, generally speaking. So last clip. <laughs> what a segue to Dame Jenny Harry's. It may be terribly unfair, but my impression is that she's a, a, an epitome of failing upwards. But I may be alone in that judgment. So here she is. She was Deputy Chief Medical Officer at the time for England, uh, 2019 to 2021. I think she's now in charge of... UKHSA. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, here she's talking about care home policy. 
I mean, the I people would, who've got COVID were being discharged into care homes. This, this sounds awful. Uh, this is taking a very, very high-level view that says if we have this enormous explosion of cases in the population, as you see, there will have to be a national triage. And I think what I was trying to do was uh, was explain to Ros what the the size of the problem might be. I, I don't think it had actually quite registered. Why did you choose this, Christina? I chose it because it matters. It's something that people should still be incredibly angry about. You and seem genuinely pissed I, I, off I, listening to that <laughs> even now, actually. Because it's unbelievable. Like, it sounds awful. It was awful. Okay, like she sent an email in the 16th of March saying you could discharge people if they're symptomatic to care homes. Mm. A few days later, the Department of Health changed the policy to say you can discharge into care homes without a test. Now, we don't know how many COVID-positive people were discharged because there were no testing. But the National Audit Office said that 25,000 people were discharged into care homes without a test. And, you know, both Harry's and actually Hancock later in his testimony also said, oh, it was clinically appropriate. They didn't need to be in hospital. That's fine, but they definitely didn't need to be in an environment where mm. they can infect literally the most vulnerable people in our population. Yeah. You know, we built the Nightingales. Are you really saying we couldn't have built a halfway place where people could recover in isolation without having a risk of infection? I mean, the Nightingales could have been used exactly. for that because they weren't yeah. used for anything else. And so you saw, like, um, for instance, there was a paper comparing care home policies across Europe. In Denmark and Germany, from week one, they prioritised tests for care homes. They prioritised PPE for care homes. They refused to... They had an isolation of 14 days before you could mm, just charge mm. in. And they had far fewer care home deaths than we did, right? And And I think, for me, what it is is... It's about the value that you put on lives. And it, it, this absolutely was not a question of opening it the economy or, you know, prioritising the young over the old. And it's like this was during lockdown. Not a single person or job benefited from discharging COVID positive people into care homes mm. or not giving them adequate PPE or not providing sick pay to agency workers or not realising that agency workers worked across care homes. Right. And we had, you know, 30,000 deaths in those two months. 30,000 extra people died. That's almost one in 10 of the entire number of people in care homes at that time. And I just, I just cannot understand how people like Harry's and Hancock aren't apologising <laughs> profusely and begging the forgiveness of the people whose relatives died. Like, those lives matter. They mm. don't just not matter because they're in a care home. And Council for um, COVID Bereaved Families UK, in their final submissions, brought up a point that you made, I think, in the last session that we had, where she contradicted uh, evidence given by both Matt Hancock and others, saying that we uh, managed to avoid the NHS being overwhelmed. And... The point you very eloquently made last time was that the NHS was overwhelmed according to the people working on the front line. The point she made was that when you make the decision to release people into care homes without even testing them, that means the NHS is overwhelmed because that's not a decision that the NHS would make but for thinking it wouldn't have enough beds. And so you can't, you can't say, oh, well, we only killed X thousand people, therefore we weren't overwhelmed. You know, if you weren't overwhelmed, you would be treating every single person. So 
Module 2 has now ended. Next up for the COVID inquiry are, are modules 2A, 2B, and 2C, which are about decision-making in the three devolved administrations. They kick off, I think, on the 24th of January. As I understand it, because Lady Hallett has promised to put out interim reports um, on each module, and I think she will put out an interim report on module 2 without waiting for 2A, 2B, and 2C. I think they will be separate mini interim reports, as it were. Of all the interim reports, I think this, the interim report of Module 4, which is the procurement, and a new investigation that has been announced, because that's the other development, that this month Module 6 was announced specifically into care homes. Oh, was it? I, yeah. I missed that. Um, it was like the 12th of December. There was all that stuff going on, and I think a lot of people missed it, which is why I'm flagging it up. So they've said there will now be a Module 6 in care homes. Good. Um, so can I just ask for a couple of sentences? What's your overall impression of Module 2, of what you've seen of it? What's the big takeaway for you? I think one of it is it was just too many people trying to cover their ass mm. and actually not engaging with what you said. An inquiry is there to learn for the next pandemic. Mm. And to do that, yes, you have to understand what happened. But people, it felt very defensive. Everyone was quite defensive. I don't want to say anything that's going to get me into trouble or get anyone else into trouble. Mm. And I think that hinders learning. And I also think there's been a real isolationist bent to it where there's been very, very little discussion of the international response. I know that there is some written evidence on it, but actually not much. Yeah. And I think that's very disappointing as well because it's it's amazing learning, right? If you're a researcher, yeah. look at this data set. You've got mm. how many, you know, 150 countries that all dealt with this. <laughs> what can we learn? And we're just really focused on what we did and trying to be like, oh, well, where are we on the league table? And... and and I find that quite, well, shit, basically. It's fascinating because one of the recommendations of Council for the Bereaved, one of their very strong insistences is that a sort of standing committee that looks specifically at pandemic response is put together because what they say is a standing committee could look abroad when they have you know, when they're dealing with epidemics that don't necessarily come here and learn what they do and, and take lessons from them, which is what a system that only springs up a framework when it's a problem here, it doesn't have that yeah. long-term learning. No, so. I agree with that. And I think just, just one more thing that came out, actually, that might also come out in the, in the um, Home Nation inquiries next mm. year is how the regional responses and having the different tiers and the mm. different geographical region-based response didn't really work. And one of the things that council said actually was something like, we want to make clear that there was never really any scientific evidence for the tiers and we didn't think they would work at the level they were implemented. And you think of the pain that people went through yeah. that autumn of 2020, trying to work out, A, what the restrictions were and them constantly changing the impact on businesses, on lives. And we kind of knew it wasn't going to be enough. Yeah. And the confusion, actually. Yeah. Because that was, a, I think, a more long-term effect. I think that was a point at which a lot of people went, oh, who knows what the rules are. And the government did use it to settle political scores. You know, mm. like the whole issue, the saga with Andy Burnham, we haven't managed to go into Absolutely. his evidence. But 
and I think we'll see that come out particularly with the Scottish yeah. the Scottish module. It's it's just it's yes. just disappointing. Burnham's evidence was strong, as was Sadiq Khan's, yeah. especially yeah. on you know the evidence that there were certain ethnicities that were being affected much more. We yeah. knew that very yeah. early, and yet a team wasn't put together. Kemi Badenoch, by the way, was one of the worst people to give evidence. I mean, it didn't attract much attention because she was of not huge consequence at the time. But considering she's someone with leadership aspirations, I think that bears some reflection in the future. For my part, I think looking back at the that initial mission of Module 2 to look at decision-making... It really was quite frightening to see how the proverbial sausage is made. It's easy to miss the big picture, I think, in the gossip and the soap opera, but the the big picture is this. If one accepts the premise that there is utility in notions of representative democracy, of choosing, like, the best people among us to make decisions for all of us, then you have to look at the system of choosing them. You have to do it now because what we saw very clearly is that the people who rise at the top are not the best. They are the most ambitious and those two things are not the same. And what happens when you have egocentric, mediocre people at the top is that they surround themselves not with people that give them the best advice but with people that make them feel smart who are even more mediocre and so it goes with those minister teams and it cascades downwards. And it really is a led by donkeys final learning from this module for me. A small company would not have survived being run as our government was run for that period. But it's not even that we're led by donkeys, which I think you're absolutely right. Yes, we're led by donkeys who don't give a shit. And, and I think that, that's what's missing is there's, I didn't get any sense from any of the politicians, except maybe Gove, but I don't know about him, is, is a sense that they're there to serve, that they, they have a mm-hmm. sense of public service, that they care about the people they're meant to represent. And that is just, well, something's gone wrong, right? Yeah. And I will say about Sage is that I think they, you know, the people on there, the absolutely. scientists on there, absolutely, absolutely went above and beyond to provide the best advice that they could. And you can argue, and I, and I do have questions about the structure of it. And some individuals but, were more callous than others, absolutely. But yes, I, and, and the majority of the civil servants that we saw yeah. are, seem to have a very clear sense of public service, yeah, which the politicians simply didn't share. Thank you for joining me. Happy holidays. Thank you. (laughs) I hope you manage a a proper and meaningful rest. Why not make your New Year's resolution to back us on Patreon? For just three quid a month, you'll get all of our episodes first without all the pesky ads, as well as access to all our exclusive merchandise. Before we leave you, it's important to remember why this inquiry is taking place. A conservative estimate is that over 230,000 people lost their lives because of this pandemic. And the evidence is pointing very clearly that at least some part of that could have been avoided. And that's the bottom line. 
how do we get to a place where next time, because there will be a next time, that is a certainty, those deaths are avoided. From the bunker, I'm Alexandreou saying over and out. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Chris Jones and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.